Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Sarah Ivry. Today, Jews and Muslims in Morocco. About 4,000 Jews live in Morocco. That's a tiny number, especially if you consider that just 30 years ago, there were nearly a quarter of a million of them there. Jews had been in Morocco for centuries. They lived side by side with Arabs. They worked with them. They saw them in the street, in the grocery store. Then, in the 20th century, they started leaving. There was a peak exodus in the 60s. What do Moroccans today know or think or remember about Jews now that there are so few of them around to interact with? That is exactly what Omar Boom wanted to find out. Boom is a professor of anthropology at the University of Arizona in Tucson, and he's a native of Morocco. He went looking for answers in the anti-Atlas region in the south. He spoke to four generations of Moroccans there. The result is a new book called Memories of Absence. And Omar Boom joins us today from a studio in Tucson to talk about it. Omar Boom, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you for having me. Omar, because I think the villages and oases of Morocco where you conducted so much of your research are probably pretty foreign to our listeners, I wonder if you could start by giving us a little bit of a picture of what it's like and who lives there now. Imagine you're a tourist going through the anti-atlas of uh, Morocco. Uh, before we go on, let's just define uh, what is anti-atlas. The anti-atlas mountains, Morocco, there's the high atlas mountains in the, in the central part of the country, the middle atlas mountains in the north. And there is also this, the anti-atlas is the chains that right before you start entering the desert. What you see basically is a group of villages, mostly around oases, uh, palm trees, and uh, subsistence farming, subsistence agriculture. So, so that's so. These are the communities that that I that I was interested in, and these communities are made of a very complex social groups. You have Berbers, Arabs. You have uh, blacks, locally known as Haratins. Some of them were former slaves that were brought from sub-Saharan Africa. But you had also a very big uh, Jewish population that throughout the anti-Atlas was probably around 10,000 Jews who lived in every small oasis, in every small hamlets in those regions. So they were part and parcel of these local small communities. And before the Jews uh, had a real big wave of uh, immigration leaving the country in the 60s, in this region, in the anti-Atlas region, were the Jews there also farmers? How did they fit into the social hierarchy? No, Jews were mostly peddlers and merchants. The villages of the anti-Atlas mountains represent one of the oldest Jewish communities in the world. Uh, People, Jews and Muslims believe that many Jews arrived there after the destruction of the first temple. Some believe that many also came after the destruction of the second temple. So first of all, this area uh, represents one of the oldest Jewish settlements in North Africa. Uh, that's the first point. The second point, when, when people, many of these Jews, when they, when they arrived, most of them practiced peddling and merchants. So they were the intermediary merchants between Muslim, Berber, and Arab communities. Of course, most of these communities are tribal. Sometimes these relationships were strained, so they, they, they needed Jews to interact between themselves, especially at the level of trade. 
And did they socialize with these tribal communities also? I mean, was there a cultural and social life that they were involved with there? Yes, this is actually what's different from the Jews who lived in urban areas like Fez or Marrakesh. These Jews didn't live in separate neighborhood. So they, they lived in, of course, inside villages called Qsurs. These are walled villages, and they had their own neighborhood. They had their own synagogues. They practiced their own religious rituals, but they interacted on a daily, on a daily lives with these Muslims. But they also they also needed uh, because of their social status, their low social status, they needed the protection of the these communities, both Berbers and Arabs, and sometimes the the protection of uh, very powerful figures within these communities. As we said earlier, though now in that region there are very few Jews, if any, especially in the south. What is it that you wanted to learn by talking to? four generations of Muslim Moroccans about the Jews who were there? As, as a Muslim anthropologist, I have been fascinated by the stories that Jews tell about themselves, mostly Jews who live in Israel today, who are from that region, and uh, on whom many studies were done by Israeli sociologists and anthropologists. So I've always noticed that Jews talk about who are from these regions, talk about their experiences, uh, not only within their local communities, but also in their interactions with with Muslim, Berber, and Arab communities. So I wanted to see what their uh, counter-Muslim friends and neighbors and sometimes um, enemies at some point, in, in some cases, what they what they talk about them because this is this is a study that has never been done, and I wanted to look at it generational wise. I want to see if you go back in time where Jews and Muslims interacted with each other, and you look at today, what kind of memories all members of the older generations who lived with Jews who interacted with Jews transmitted or not to their youngest. Uh, children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. And the second part of this, I want, given the context of the relationship that exists between Israelis of Moroccan descent and Morocco, I want to see, because most of them come back every summer, some of them come back uh, to visit their the cemeteries of their great-grandparents or cemeteries of their holy men. So I want to see how these memories influence the relationship between the states of Israel and Morocco in the context of the Arab-Israeli conflict. The oldest generation who you talked to were people who came of age when Morocco was still a protectorate of France. Yes. How did that first generation, that oldest generation, talk about the Jews? Was it with warmth? Was it with malice? Did they think of the Jews as Moroccan? Let, let, let me rephrase that, if you don't mind. Sure. The, 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 I deal with four generations, the generation of the great-grandparents, the generation of the grandparents, the generation of the parents, and the generation of the young adults. Each, represent, each generation is represented by 20 individuals. So my sample included 80 people from many villages in the anti-Atlas. The oldest generation came of age at the end of the late 19, uh, early 1920s, sorry. So that's that's the first generation, and it's, it's the generation that I call great-grandparents. And what's interesting about this generation is this is a generation that talks about Jews as friends, 
as locals, as actually members of the communities. They remembered them by names. Some of them even still had, when I, when I did my ethnographic study in 2004, some of them still were still receiving postcards and sometimes letters and sometimes gifts from uh, other local, uh, other, fr- other Jewish members from uh, Israel. So it's, so it's interesting to see that interaction and to see it being re- humanized, be, to, uh, putting a human face on it. But also, th- they also talk about moments of anxieties, moments of strife, moments of uh, enmity between, between the groups. And in, in their conversations, what you see mostly is a description of a social interaction between the, the groups, a social interaction that at some moments is a very positive one. In some instances, it's a very negative one. But overall, they coexisted because from what most of them tell me, because of the harshness of the desert, because of the harshness of the environment, both of them bring something to that survival in, in that area. And that's why they needed to, to live together. Do you remember any stories or expressions in particular that best captured this relationship between this first generation whom you talked to? One of the interesting phrases that come up in, in many of these uh, conversations that I had is this proverb that says, a market without Jews is like bread without salt. It's a proverb that talks about the relationship in the market mostly. But I think when I started, when I talked to some women, uh, Muslim women, mostly uh, like my mother, for instance, and uh, some great-grandmothers, they were talking about, even though this proverb is about the market, it's also extend to the households. Because without the role of Jews in these societies, it would be very hard for many people to survive the drought sometimes, sometimes to survive the locust invasion, for instance. There are a lot of natural calamities that take place, like a locust um, invasion, for instance, from the sub-Saharan Africa. So when, when the harvest is affected, Jews intervene to help either through loans, sometimes just by supporting the people with barley, with wheat, with sugar, with tea. So people talk about these these stories, both men and women, especially from the older generation, men and women talk about these stories. The youngest people you spoke to, the young adults, were uh, men who mostly have never met a Jew, and they know about Jews only uh, through secondhand, through the media or through their elders. What kind of things did they have to say about Jews? This is actually one of the most surprising things that uh, that I've seen in this study. I, I thought that their memories would be different. That's from the beginning. Of course, they are brought up in different contexts. They're brought up in different political, historical, and social contexts. But still, I thought when I was thinking about this study, I thought that you could have some transmission of some knowledge from the older generation to the younger generation at some point. And that knowledge could at some point allow these young adults to have a much more complex opinion or at least nuanced opinion about Jews and in the context not only of Morocco but in the context of Israel. I didn't see that. I think what I saw is a complete separation between two worldviews, two opinions of two groups who happen to be living in the same household. So even though 
uh, I have cases where members of the great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, and young adults live in the same household. You could be sitting around dinner or around uh, a cup of tea, and you hear the older generation speaking one discourse and the younger generation speaking a different, completely different discourse. The discourse of the younger generation is mostly about the political uh, context of the Middle East. So you start seeing mostly some literally and, and some anti-Semitic ideas about Jews, some anti-Semitic ideas that are much more closer to the um, Christian views, the European Christian views, than the traditional stereotypes about Jews in the Islamic world. And that, so you, got, you, you start seeing the blending of these two discourses, the anti-Semitic Christian discourse that started to get into the Islamic world and through uh, through the, some members of the Christian community in Syria and Lebanon, later on moved to, to, to Egypt by mid-1850s, 60s, and now it's become even a mainstream, a part of the mainstream discourse among many members of the younger generation in, in, in Morocco and um, in, in these samples that I'm looking at. So the discourse of the idea of Jews as powerful, control the world, even uh, the blood libel images, for instance, you see some of these examples that you would never think you would hear them from members of these populations who live in really far away regions. Uh, electricity came to many of these areas in the late 1990s. Wow. So, 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 so that's the reason why I actually had to choose this this region because I I thought that the farthest I go from urban areas, the farthest I go from the conflict, the probably I would get a much different story of what's happening in in the world. But it's not. These are areas as close to the conflict as areas in Casablanca or Tunis or Algeria or or Egypt. Did people say these kinds of uh, things openly, or did it require a little bit of prompting? Openly, it's very interesting. So, I think one of the reason, one of the greatness about this uh, methodology that I that I used, I I made the choice from the beginning not to ask any direct questions about Jews or Jewish Muslim relations. I wanted to be an open ended conversation where we start talking about water, we start talking about access to. Uh, the region, and then that uh, develops into talking about communities and talking about factions within the communities, and then you have conversations about Israel, about Palestine, and so on and so forth. And it it was challenging in 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 a different way because the the topic itself was a taboo. The idea of Jews as a topic of conversation or Jews as a topic of study is still a taboo, of course, given the sensitivities around the conflicts in the Middle East. The fact that I've never asked a direct question, I think it allowed people to be comfortable. And I sometimes I get shocked because even when we talked about questions of the Holocaust, for instance, and um, and I, I was very open open to many of my informants because I think that's the least I can do as uh, to be to to be honest to to them, just like they were honest to me to tell me their opinions. Um, I told them uh, some part of my funding came from Jewish organizations. I thought, uh, but they've never influenced my my study. That I told them part of my funding came from the Holocaust Memorial Museum in D.C., and I spent some time there. In many times, they many of them were openly telling me that although they like me, they like me as as a member of the community, 
but they don't agree with my with my research. They see me as a as a pro-Zionist, as a as a spy who worked for the CIA or the Mossad. So they are very open in their in their thoughts. But whether we call them a misinformed thoughts or not, these are opinions that are out there, and we have to look at them, we have to study them, we have to break them down, and explain why people think of them that way. Can you tell us, Omar, a little bit about your own background? I'm uh, I'm a Muslim. I grew up in in as I said in a small village called Mohammed in the province of Tata. Uh, my father is illiterate. My mother is illiterate. I have four brothers and four sisters, and uh, between them, I have a lot of uh, nieces and nephews. So, uh, so I grew up in a very large extended family. Uh, the, my family, they practiced mostly farming and herding. So I grew up um, as I, I, I did both. But also I was very lucky as one of the luckiest in the village to attend school and to finish my schooling in an area where it's very hard. You have the, the dropout rate is very, very high. So I was very lucky to finish my, my schooling. But I come also from a multi-ethnic background um, not only as a as a black person, but also as a my mother is Berber, so so my father comes from an Arab origin, my mother comes from a Berber origin. So in general, I I grew up in a very uh, multi-ethnic, multi-cultural, multi-linguistic uh, context. Did you grow up with Jews in your uh, village? No, I I've heard stories from my mother when I was. 10, 11 years old. But most of the Jews who lived in that part of Morocco, in the Antiatlas, left by the early 1960s. Now, when it comes to uh, the first time actually I met a Jew, it was in Marrakesh when I was beginning my secondary school. Uh, I was studying in Marrakesh, and I lived in a quarter outside the Mellah, outside the Jewish neighborhood in Marrakesh called Berima. And uh, I remember actually... In the in the neighborhood where I lived, there was one woman uh, who stayed there, and even she ended up dying there in Marrakesh. She didn't leave to Israel, and uh, uh, we used. I remember we used she we used to take uh, bread to the public oven for her, and uh, she used to give us bread. She used to give us candy. So that I was about eleven or twelve years old at the time. At the same time, also I, I remember also cases of. Uh, where as kids in, the, in our neighborhood, there were also Jewish kids who live in the close neighborhoods to us. We used to go and fight with them. So, so that's part of the ideas we, we had as kids, as, as kids about going there and looking for Jews. And, and, and that's part of how we get socialized as kids. Omar, were there any particular individuals you met or encounters that you had when you were doing your research that stayed with you and that give you optimism about the future of uh Mutual understanding between Arabs and Jews. Oh, there were so many. There were there were so many. I think that's it's it just remains. It's a matter of pub, of uh, publicity. We tend to hear just the negative sides in this world. There are so many. I met a lot of. I met actually this this uh, Muslim uh, who decided to establish his own museum where he collected all kinds of manuscripts that pertain to. Jewish-Muslim relationships in in the in the anti-atlas, and he created his own museum with pictures of Jews who used to live there, 
and he brings kids from these local villages to see the museum and to uh, teach them about uh, cases of slavery, cases of uh, human rights abuse in Morocco, but also cases of Jewish presence and Jewish migration. There are cases of a lot of Moroccan scholars who work on this topic, and I think they, they undergo more challenges than I do because they live in Morocco and they would face criticism from people who think that they are trying to normalize a relationship with Israel and their pro-Zionists. So they they really live in the middle of the debate, but they have been fighting this and they've been uh, fighting for their own opinions. There are cases of kids, uh, teenagers, who have established uh, associations of Muslims to learn about the Jewish heritage and made what would be called the, the sin of visiting Israel. And they've been targeted by different members of uh, Moroccan society, both on the Islamist side as well as the Marxist and leftist side. So there are a lot of cases. And what it shows you, it shows that there is a vibrant conversation about these issues. And the moment you start believing in the importance of talking about these issues, whether you agree or disagree about the politics of it, the politics of the conflict in the Middle East, set apart, there is also a human story that's a Moroccan story as well as an Israeli story, as well as a Muslim story, as well as it's a Jewish story. And the moment you learn more about it, the moment you, 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 you could be opening the doors for a better conversation between future generations, I think. Omar Boom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Omar Boom is an anthropologist who teaches at the University of Arizona in Tucson. His new book is called Memories of Absence, How Muslims Remember Jews in Morocco. It's out now from Stanford University Press. I know I say it every week, but I mean it every week. We want to hear what you thought of our podcast, so please join the conversation by going to our website, tabletmag.com, or simply write us an email. You can send it to podcast at tabletmag.com. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. Thank you so much for joining us, and please join us again next time. <laughs>